Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2001 David Lynch film Mulholland Drive. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? This is the movie. I'm doing fine, Sam. Thanks. Yeah, I am. I'm really excited to talk about this. And, you know, I this is the fourth David Lynch film we've done. And uh, it's, you know, I started to look over his filmography and I realized how short it is, how there's really, I mean, we've, we've done maybe not half, but getting close to half of his films mm. on this podcast. Uh, the last film he made was Inland Empire in 2006. He was 60 years old then. Like, that's not that old. Mm. And since then, I mean, he did Twin Peaks The Return, but hasn't done a feature film since 2006. So um, that's, uh, that, I don't know. That, that I was sort of surprised when I realized that. I was like, no, there's got to be something else in there. But uh, but there's not. I think he I think he may be done with feature films. He hasn't really made that in an announcement, but. Uh, I also read, though, that he kind of considers Twin Peaks to return an 18-hour film. Sure. Um, and that makes sense. He really loves the long form. And the other thing, he's been, uh, he's been doing quite a bit of painting. You know, he's a, he's a painter by training. Uh, and he's, been, uh, he's done a couple of music videos. So part of it is he's, he's kind of eclectic in his approach to art. He likes to do all kinds of different stuff. So uh, unfortunately, I don't know that we're going to see another theatrical film from him. Right. Um what is your history with this film? I presume by 2001, you were, you were there right away to see this. Is that, oh, absolutely. Is that correct? I, was, I was there right away and uh, absolutely loved it from the start. And I, I actually, this is only the third time I've seen it. I only, I only recall revisiting on video one more time after. Uh, so I was really happy to have a reason to get back to it. So why is that? I mean, this is a movie that, um, it's it's odd to say I've seen more than you have because I mm-hmm. this week I watched it versions of it three times um, and I've seen it before. Um, this is a movie that I look at and I think it just just screams to be looked at again and again and again. So so I'm curious why is that? If this is one of your favorite filmmakers, this is in the conversation for one of his greatest films. Why is it that that this is something that that you haven't you know it's uh over 20 years old you know that you haven't revisited that's a really good question sam i guess (laughs) one answer simply is the uh, is is the choice one always has to make between uh with a limited amount of time which you're revisiting a film even if one loves it and watching something new i think it's part of it um when i think about the films that i watch over and over they tend to be shorter films um so you know eraserhead is 90 minutes dr strange love is 90 minutes so I, I find myself often going back and repeating shorter films. And this, this film's a little bit more of a of an investment. It's almost two and a half hours. So it's just it's just the the limitations of a twenty four hour day and all the options one has to watch. But how I, I understand everything you're saying, but I'm going to pick at this a little bit more. This <laughs> is a movie that has so much to it that the first time through. It's it's you're so it's so hard to get your head around everything that's happening. I mean, my my response is to sort of be like, I want to watch it, and then almost immediately watch mm-hmm. it again. Um, so that mm-hmm. that that's the, some interesting restraint there. Like, like I just think there's, you know, every time I watched it this week, there were little things I noticed. It's like, oh, even even after I had taken notes watching it, watching mm-hmm. it again, I was went back to my notes with a different pen and started writing more things in there. So so I just find that really interesting that like this 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 movie and I think his movies in general have a pretty magnetic pull to me. And maybe that's just a personality thing too, that like, I kind of want to keep going back into that to try to 
piece some things together or make some sense out of things. Um, <clears throat> this is his follow-up to Straight Story, which this is a very different movie than uh, than Straight Story. Um, were you aware in the late 90s that Lynch was working on a TV pilot? Because this originated as a uh, a pilot for a potential TV series. Yeah, I didn't know about that until... Um until Mulholland Drive itself came out as a film. And then I kind of heard the backstory. I don't recall being aware that he was shopping a, a pilot around. Um, you know, and his his last effort at network television had not been successful. He made six, up, six episodes of On the Air, and only a half-hour comedy, uh, only three of which were shown, and then they were pulled. So it, it's interesting to me that he went back to this idea of a TV pilot. And I, and I remember... When I watched the film the first time, thinking to myself, how in the world did he ever think this was going to work on TV? Uh, now, part of it is when you see the film, you've seen all the additional footage that he shot. Uh, and he's never really, there's no way, he, he sort of suppressed the pilot. So you really can't see anymore what, because in an ideal criterion disc would have the original pilot plus the film, but he won't let anybody look at that original pilot. So we really don't know exactly. I know that, he shot an additional 17 days when he made the film. Uh, and one can obviously imagine the scenes that are in the film that would not have been in the TV pilot. But I wasn't aware that it had been a pilot. So as I said, my first response was, this never would have worked on TV. But there are things about this film. And of course, one of the geniuses of the film is there are things about this film that the pilot was setting up that he obviously couldn't come back to. And there are reasons why, like Robert Forster, who's in the opening scene, right? He just come off this really brilliant performance in Jackie Brown. He was probably the biggest name in the cast. Now, what in the world, you know, what in the world is he doing in only one scene? Well, you know, Lynch was planning a, a series and Forster would be in the series, but of course that that just didn't didn't materialize. And then there are other things that are, I don't know if, they, if you say they're underdeveloped, but there's other things where, well, you know, was there more to the hitman story than we actually get? And obviously, Lynch had to kind of uh, invent things sort of on, on the fly. But to me, one of the most remarkable things about the film is, is it doesn't bear any, to me, it doesn't bear any traces of not being successfully envisioned as a, as a film. Uh, and so, I mean, Lynch, I think, often does consider this kind of a fortunate accident if you will that it got turned down as a pilot i i think it's much better that's a result oh absolutely i want to i want to correct one thing you said there barrett because do you know what i watched this morning i watched the mulholland drive pilot you can find it you did oh okay. i watched well, it okay. yes right. now it, it's a it's a it's a, like an a, a transfer from an old video cassette so it's a little okay. rough but it's fascinating huh. because of exactly what you're saying so there's like more robert forrester in the pilot there's okay. more of so so there are, but at the same time it is a big chunk of this movie i mean a, a, largely the pilot is this movie but then he adds on like you said he does additional shooting and there are scenes that i that they shot um for the pilot slash TV series, for example, the first scene at Winkies, mm. where the guy where um the guy's talking about his dream, they shot that when they were shooting the pilot. But at least in this version of the pilot, that scene's not in it. That mm. was going to appear in a different episode. I think some Club Silencio 
was that stuff was probably filmed too but that is also not in this pilot so um so i think they were all they were preparing things that were going to show up there and then he when he built the film he took some of that stuff that they had filmed that was potentially maybe going to be in the pilot or episode two or three and then they went and shot additional things um so it's actually very fascinating to look at. Like I watched the pilot and I think, oh, I would watch this show. At the same time, I agree with you. We could have had like, you know, maybe an interesting David Lynch TV show that gets canceled after one or two seasons. Instead, we get a masterpiece. So I'll take the masterpiece as it turns out. Um, do you remember your first impression? I mean, you said you you loved this film the first time you saw it. Do you remember any other thoughts you had? about it because i mean i'll talk about mine but but i'm curious like like what were your memories sitting and watching this the first time well i think i guess it's you know what you have with any lynch film which is um is this a mystery that has any kind of a solution to it and one of the things that i that i realized this is going to sound like i'm a, a terribly inattentive viewer and maybe this is what happens when years go by but i had not remembered or and and I, I I had not seen one part of the film as a dream and the other part of the film as reality. I remember in my memory, there was a, a change in the, in the character, almost as though she was the same person, as opposed to thinking, you know, there's a dream world and there's a real world. Of course, that's a big argument about interpreting the film. So that, I, I don't think that was quite as, I didn't come away with quite the uh, wizard of Oz perspective on it that I certainly have now as I've looked at it. That's interesting because that's almost exactly my impression. So I saw this in probably 2002. It was on home video by then. Um, and when I was, and I, then I rewatched it about a, maybe a year and a half ago. And when, I, before I rewatched it, my memory was very close to what you just described. Um, I didn't think of it as having like a, a clear break, even though as you rewatch it, it's like, oh, this is, seems pretty clear. This is this is happening. Um, and I think that's in part because if you go into it unprepared for anything, you're not he's laying breadcrumbs that you're not picking up. And the second time through, you're you're happy to pick those things up because you're waiting for this switch to happen. So it was a very different movie the second time that I watched it. No, I will say both in 2002 and the summer of 21 or whenever, when I watched this, um, the movie felt a little impenetrable to me. Like I was like, I, 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 especially the second time, the first time, I don't even know that I thought that I liked it. I was just like, I don't even know what to do with this mm. a year and a half ago. I'm like, this is great. I think, but I don't feel like, but, but it felt like I don't really have a way into thinking about this. This week, I did something a little different because I had watched this so recently. I, I changed my process for watching these films. Typically, what I'll do is I'll just watch the movie cold. Then I'll go read a bunch about it and I'll watch it again and take notes. But I thought, well, I've just seen this. So instead, I read a bunch of stuff about it before I watched it. Then I watched it and took notes. And then I watched it cold, without worrying about taking notes and just sort of letting letting it happen. And that was so helpful <laughs> Because there were so many things that I read that helped kind of unlock things and particularly gave me things to look for. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when Lynch puts this out on DVD, he himself gives, I don't know if clue is the right, I think he calls them clues, but he gives you things to be like, pay attention to this. You know, mm -hmm. like there's so much going on. And I found those things so helpful because mm -hmm. as I was watching it, I thought, oh, I wouldn't have paid attention to 
you know, the opening before the credits, but it's like, there's actually like a couple things that he says there are at least two clues that happen before you see the words Mulholland drive. And had I not had that, I don't even, I, I might've forgotten to write those things down as I was writing notes. Cause it, it almost like the jitterbug thing almost feels like just, uh, just a credit sequence. Like this is, does this mean something? Um, and a couple things I read really unlocked the movie for me. So, so, um, I like what you said about this being a mystery, but uh, I think Ebert said it's both a mystery and maybe there is no mystery to it at all at the same time. Um, but I, the way I think about it is that it has what I would say in quotes, it has solutions. There are things you can be like to say, well, this is how the structure works and this is what's happening. But none of the solutions are total. Like any solution you come up with, and I've I've read and heard so many theories this week all of them are really interesting. And then you say, but what about this thing over here? Like that, it either unravels that solution or it says, yes, but there's more going on than just a simple solution. Well, it's interesting you that, uh, that, you know, e- e- Ebert um, contrasted the film with another kind of mystery film that we watched a couple of years ago, Memento. And, you know, Ebert says, if you pay close attention and you watch a couple of times, you can actually, quote, solve Memento. You can actually figure out what's going on in Memento. Uh, And he's not sure that that is actually possible with uh, with Mulholland Drive. Um, I I have to, at this point, get in a plug for one of my favorite film reviewers to to disagree with. And that is Rex Reed. Um, Rex Reed is one of the worst film reviewers. I don't know how he survived as long as he has. But he was in one of the minorities. He called um, Mulholland Drive a load of moronic and incoherent garbage. Huh. Which, which, is, one, <laughs> which is one view. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because, as is the case with most of Lynch's films, um, they follow the, lo- the logic, if you want to call it that. They follow the logic of a dream. And there are different ways into dreams. And there's no... You know, if you're a Freudian, for example, you would say, well, the Freudian interpretation of the dream is the way to understand a dream. Or if you're a Jungian, the Jungian interpretation is the way to understand a dream. And dreams don't operate according to any, you know, you can impose those systems on your dreams and say that's how they work. But that's not necessarily going to provide you with a complete and consistent interpretation. And to be frank, that's kind of uninteresting to me. I, I, I like the fact that you can go different directions. Well, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. And who says that it has to be nailed down to be only one thing? So for me, you know, somebody who is insisting on evidently what Rex Reed wants, which is coherence. Um, I mean, I think there's coherence, but it's not coherence of a national, necessarily a logical or rational sort. It's coherence of the emotions, it's coherence of a kind of, uh, of of that dream state where things get connected in unexpected ways and people behave in unusual ways or you yourself find yourself um, transformed. It's almost it's that Alice in Wonderland quality of the film. So that's what I that's what I respond to. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Nolan, because actually in my notes, what I wrote was Christopher Nolan makes puzzle boxes or makes math problems. Yes. And if you do the work, you solve the math problems. If you treat this, if you treat Mulholland Drive like a math problem, you will get all kinds of endless, beautiful, and frustrating remainders. Or it's like, <laughs> I solved the math problem. Like, I can tell you this is this and this is her dream. And it's like, but the crazy thing is like, if, okay, let's, that, that seems to be the standard interpretation, right? Is that the first 
mm, roughly two hours is this dream. And there's lots of things that point to it. And then the last half an hour is Diane waking from that dream. And then we're seeing, you know, up to her, up to her suicide. And we're making sense out of this. And I, I, I buy that as like, well, that's that at the same time, the real world post dream is arguably as if not more surreal than the dream world. Like there, if you think about the things that happen there, there's stuff happening there that, that doesn't, doesn't work. If you're like, well, this is the sensible world that all makes like it. That's not the case. It is also surreal. You get Irene and her companion as tiny people, you know, it's like, you get all that stuff. It's like, but that's in the real world part of this, not in the dream part of this, which makes it re- like, that's a, one of those little remainders or you get, you get other characters where you're like, the math checks out until I get to this. And then it's like, ah, now I don't know. And I love that. I think, yeah. I, and, and I, I, I love touches in the quote real world that actually remind me a little bit of Coen brothers. Um, I think the, uh, the fail, the, the, the bungled hit. Yes. You know, <laughs> shoots the guy in the head, tries to set it up as a suicide. The bullet goes to the wall. Now he has to deal with the woman who's been shot on the other side. And then there's the guy with the vacuum cleaner. And the whole thing just kind of snowballs in in kind of a raising Arizona uh, sort, sort, sort of way. Um, and it, it also, it stands alone as a set piece, but because we never know what that black book is about. We don't know right. why he's trying to steal the black book, right? Um, that's got to be part of what was going to happen later in the series. Yep. But then Lynch manages to bring him back in as Diane Selwyn's hitman. So then that then that works. But even when you're in Diane's apartment, I, I, I'm never quite sure what's actually happening. Is you know is um, is Rita Camilla actually there for that encounter on the couch? Did that actually happen? Um, I, I, so so even even if you say you're moving out of the dream world into quote reality, I'm still not sure. That reality, the dream isn't bleeding into reality. Right. I, I think that I think there are a few things. Uh, I, I think there are a few things that we can ground. You know, I think there are a few things we can say. Okay, I think. Okay, maybe I maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm pretty sure. I think she won the jitterbug contest. I think that actually happens. And then, you know, the two. So the jitterbug contest happens first. You see her with her, the the couple that I presume are her parents, um, and then you see a quick shot of the bed sheets. Uh, right. And then that's the suicide scene. So I think I think you can say with some confidence that Diane Selwyn exists and kills herself. Right. I think we can say that happened. And that's about it. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting. So, you know, you were talking about the like, does the scene in Diane's apartment with Camilla happen? Because that would that would imply that there was this relationship that she wanted right, there. Right. Now, what's interesting, and this took me a while to put together. Um, mostly because I'm slow, but there's the woman who lives in apartment 12. 12, yeah. Who looks a lot like Camilla. Like they're, you know, he he may and and clearly they lived together because the whole switching apartment things doesn't act like that doesn't actually make sense. That sounds like an excuse. And she has some of her stuff. So it's like, so that relationship broke up. So that's either a relationship where Diane is trying to replace Camilla, or mm-hmm. that was her, like she projects her feelings about the real Camilla onto this other part. Like we don't know, but it's interesting. And like, and the pieces are all there for it to be either of those things or neither of those things. Um, I, in, in terms of thinking about this as like a, uh, a dream movie, there's, there's one little piece that I love. And it was interesting to watch it in the pilot because, uh, 
Um, it, it's it's a strange moment that happens, and it and it's a dream logic in the the early part of the movie when when um, Betty and Rita go to Winkies. And they're having coffee and and Rita sees the name tag. Right. And then she has this moment of like, I like I, I can't remember what she says. I remember she she has this moment where she figures something out. Right. And then there's like a hard cut and they're walking into the apartment. Mm-hmm. And that's when she says the name Diane. Mm-hmm. It's like if this were reality, you would not wait until you got all the way back to the apartment to say that. Oh, yeah. But in a dream, you would have that jump. Now, what's fascinating mm-hmm is in the pilot that's a commercial break a commercial break they're in the restaurant and she says you know whatever i figured out hard cut commercial break come huh. back they're walking so it's still that same dream logic but like it's it's interesting to see that you know in like the tv format versus the film format the the dream logic feels different there because of that oh that's great that's great um, so one of the things that that really helped me with this movie, and it's something you've already mentioned, and I didn't realize how big of a deal this was for Lynch, but there's actually a documentary that came out in 2022 um, about this, which is uh, I was reading an article from Adam Naiman, and he meant he said, "Oh, this is look at this as a remake of The Wizard of Oz," and I was like, "Oh, okay, this all of a sudden this thing which felt impenetrable like melted away a little bit of that," and I was like, "Oh, I get it in the same way." The Wizard of Oz is this, sto- you know, this story that is this dream where everything in, in again, the real world is recast, and we and we see these things. And there's so, you know, that makes sense of, um, you know, if you if you look at the opening when you see the kind of descent into the pillow as Diane going to sleep, mm. um, and then we see her wake being woken up by the cowboy another interesting character it's like so we do have bookends and then we have this dream and when we get to the end just like at the end of wizard of oz we realize oh all of these people from the dream are also the people in her life she's reworking or recasting um the people in her life uh in this dream and that was really helpful for me um and then to really even see like specific wizard of oz things like um the one of the first things we hear Coco say, she's yelling at somebody about how she's going to kill their dog. Yes. <laughs> <And you're> like, <laughs> okay. I've seen this before, you know, and, um, but it's also an inversion of the wizard of Oz too. Like what I love is one of the most famous lines in the wizard of Oz is somebody saying, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? right. Sort of like pay no attention to the thing that is making this artifice appear real. Mm-hmm. And here we get Club Silencio, which is an inversion of that, where they're saying this is all an illusion. Like instead of saying pay no attention to that, they're saying mm-hmm. pay attention to the fact that this is not real. Um, so you you uh, you get that. You get uh, uh, you know um, Betty talking about coming from you know some the small town Deep River Ontario, and now she's in this dream place. Like there's even all kinds of you know language like that where. Once once you have that perspective, there's it just sort of is he's screaming at you. This is how to read this part of this, at least potentially. And, and I kind of love that. Well, I mean, you know, Hollywood is the dream factory, right? Yes. And, uh, and you know, and and in a way, the film is kind of both. And uh, I mean, Lynch loves Los Angeles. He when he moved to Los Angeles from the East Coast, it was like I found my place. But Los Angeles is not necessarily equal to Hollywood. So there's a there's a kind of a split identity there. Mulholland Drive is a kind of homage to 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 the landscape, uh, whereas Sunset Boulevard is more a reference to Hollywood. So 
Yeah, I'm glad we, we, you brought up Wizard of Oz because I think that, you know, Wizard of Oz, that's the mathematical formula. You know, those, those are one-to-one -one correspondences. This is more like, oh, wait a minute, the guy in Club Silencio, I thought he was the super at the hotel. And right. it's, you know, you know so, and so it's like, do you have, actually have doubling within the dream itself? Or is there really a guy who works in a hotel? Um, Lynch loves The Wizard of Oz. Um, if you've seen Wild at Heart, um, Wild at Heart is, in fact, an extended um, homage to Wizard of Oz, including appearances by the Wicked Witch and the Good, and the good Witch. Um, so I'm going to take this opportunity, Sam. I'm just going to seize it to talk about a number of other classic films that I think Lynch is either quoting or has been influenced by. So I've got about eight on my list, and, and maybe there's some more that you want to add. So The Wizard of Oz is, is, is the really obvious one. Um, the Gilda is the obvious one because that's the Rita Hayworth film. And that kind of connects with the film as having a noirish feel. I mean, Lynch makes almost nothing without a noirish feel with it, with the exception of probably of this, of this great story. Um, and, and I'm not sure this is a, as intentional reference as I think it is, but I just think the idea of the brunette on the run with money just makes me think of Out of the Past, uh, which we watched a while ago. Um, obviously, Lynch's other big favorite film is Sunset Boulevard. So you get the street sign of Sunset Boulevard. You get the entrance to the Paramount lot, which actually has the, the car from Sunset Boulevard in the background. I, I saw that, and, and I, I need to tell you... Uh... Two th about the two scenes you just mentioned in the pilot when you see the sunset boulevard sign and you see the entrance to the studio he actually plays the sunset boulevard music he's more obvious about it there the musical cue is sunset boulevard and what and, and and it's 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 kind of crazy so he actually dials that back for the movie but in the on the tv show it was like yes see this see this for what it is Absolutely. and of course you know so an aside within the aside you may recall that in Twin Peaks, the character David Lynch plays as Gordon Cole, who is the unseen character in Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm going to draw a connection to Singing in the Rain uh, in, in two ways. Uh, the, the notion of dubbing, the idea that the person singing is not actually the mm. person singing. Um, and also in Gilda, in the film Gilda, Rita, Her Rita Hayworth singing is dubbed uh, as well. Now, in the case of um, Mulholland Drive, it really is... Uh, it, it really is the actual singer singing. And there's a story behind that maybe we'll, we'll get to later. Um, Vertigo, uh, the remaking of Rita. Uh, when she puts that wig on, she looks a little bit like Marilyn Monroe. But at the same time, Persona, because in a sense, these two women are sort of, you know, they're become, looking more and more like each other as they put on the wig. Well, and they uh, even do the scene when they're in bed and you get their faces. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 that's overt at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another director that, of course, Lynch loves is, uh, is Fleeney. Um, and I think there's an eight and a half element here where you have a director struggling to complete a film. But at the same time, uh, eight and a half has the same kind of in, interpenetration of reality and dream. And finally, the really obvious to read one to me is contempt. Uh, the last word of contempt is silencia. Uh, the last word of this film is silencio. So anyway, those are some of the ones that I I picked up on anyway. Yeah, I have a lot of those on my list. Some of those are movies I haven't seen, so I don't. But but yeah, I mean, what's in, so here's a question that I had for you because um, I don't think we talked about this when we talked about Straight Story or Elephant Man or Eraserhead. Is being that sort of um, movie quotey is that a is that a thing Lynch does does very often or is this uh 
specific to Mulholland Drive that he's being that overt with like I'm I'm playing with all of these because it is this Hollywood story. Yeah, I think yeah yeah I, I think you know like I said with uh, with something like Wild at Heart, it's pretty much this is his version of uh, of Wizard of Oz or something like Blue Velvet. This is his vision of a this is his version of a noir. But this this film I think is is rich with those kinds of that kind of intertextuality. And I think it is because it's a film about Hollywood. Inland, Inland Empire is also a film about Hollywood, uh, but doesn't have quite the texture that Mulholland Drive has. Um, so I, I was I'm curious in terms of thinking about this as Sunset Boulevard. You know, we, you talked about some of the like the uh, the kind of overt references um, to it. Uh, I mean, you also it also is that in the way that that you see this as a. Uh, see Hollywood as a place that can sort of chew up people and spit them out that can, you know, people come with their dreams and, you know, it, 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 it can destroy them. I mean, I think about uh, him casting, is it Ann Miller? Is that who plays Coco? Right. So like an old Hollywood, uh, an old Hollywood star um, brought back to be in this movie. I mean, it's definitely not playing the same role as in Sunset Boulevard, but it's that idea of like, pulling some signifiers or some symbols from the past and, um, and bringing them in. Um, One other thing we should say about Sunset Boulevard too, Sam, and that is that Sunset Boulevard is narrated by a dead man. And Mulholland Drive presumably takes place within the consciousness of a dead woman. So even though she's not the narrator, it's her consciousness in a sense that's kind of giving us the story. Um, And then the other thing that we get is this sense of like a kind of larger powers at play right so we get all these different figures of people who seem to be seem to seem to wield some kind of power you know in different ways so we get mr roke um uh and you know and we get the uh castigliani brothers we get the cowboy we get the man behind winkies and you know i just kept thinking about in the um the first scene in winkies when when the guy's describing his dream and he What's interesting is that the dream or nightmare is not exactly the same as what happens. Cause what he says is I can see through the wall and yeah, see his yeah. face. And Mr. Roke is always seen through a wall, mm-hmm. right? He's seen through a glass. So, so like some of these are things where I'm like, Oh, I wonder like what more, like, 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 are we supposed to like, is that a doubling Roke and the, the man behind the, um, mm-hmm. who's ironically played by a woman, but the man behind Winky's like, like is, or is, is is there something because because the way he describes the man behind Winkies is um, he's the one who who's doing it, doing it. Yeah. You know, and, and Roke clearly seems to wield so much power that he doesn't have to. He almost says nothing. People come to him and ask questions and just are, when they ask a question, they assume the answer. You know, should we shut the production down? <laughs> we'll shut the production down. You know, it's, it's like so. So there is there is that. Um, and then the other the other folks who wield some kind of power, and we can get into these are the two old the old couple Irene and her and her companion, um, and they're really fascinating to me. And one of the things that I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but noticed when I rewatched it was when they leave the airport, mm-hmm. they're driving in a big stretch limo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like, so maybe so. At first, I thought, well, is this some couple who's also like visiting Hollywood or something? It's like, well, 
or are they something else? You know, are, are they all because the other every other time we see a limo, it is tied to, you know, this grander power. And then we see them, you know, at the end being the characters that are uh, either in reality or in her mind, pushing her to pull the trigger. Wow, yeah. You know, so like yeah, I want to pick up on a couple things you were saying. First of all, the Winky scene when he's describing the dream, just to get a little detailed about the cinematography, um, the way the camera is just floating and 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 it's almost like you're on a boat. It's just kind of gently bobbing, uh, not even bobbing, it's just kind of slowly moving up and down. It's not a handheld, uh, but it's it's a very smooth movement, and it just it's it creates just a little bit of unease as he's telling the story. Plus, the way he delivers that story is very odd. Uh, it, the whole thing itself has a kind of a dreamlike quality to it as he's talking about the dream. The other thing I want to say about, about, about Mr. Roke is it just, just as Lynch is quoting a whole bunch of other films, he's also quoting himself throughout this film. Like there's, there's elements of almost every previous Lynch film in this film or Lynch project. So Mr. Rowe, played by Michael Anderson, is, of course, the same. It looks like the same character he plays in, in Twin Peaks. Um, you get uh, architecture that reminds you of the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. You get those red curtains. Um, Jack Fisk, who is the production designer for the film, uh, Lynch's longtime best friend, um, who was the man in the planet in, uh, in Eraserhead and also Sissy Spacek's husband, uh, Jack Fist talks at one point about working with Lynch. He says, David just loves red drapes. Just He just goes crazy for those. So you get those, those classic red, red drapes. Um, and even, I think, more broadly, Angelo Badalamente's theme music for Mulholland Drive is really, in my view, a kind of, he's definitely channeling the Twin Peaks sort of soundtrack. Absolutely. And so it's really got a lot of the, that Twin Peaks element to it. Well, it's interesting when we, you know, if we think about like, um, you know, this is a story pointing to all of these like powers that are, you know, potentially um, really in control in Hollywood. It also makes me think about this, the way that they exist within the dream part of this movie. Um, Because another thing that we do in dreams and in memory, and this maybe brings us back to Rashomon, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, is how much so much of the dream is about all of these power structures that are in control right so how much of this dream is also betty diane giving an explanation for why she hasn't made it in hollywood right well there's all these other things going on these other things are pulling the strings and it's you know and if if you know she talks about in the you know at the end of the movie at the dinner party like the sylvia north story and how she really wanted that role and Mm -hmm. camilla ends up getting that role and the dream is all about how camilla got that role but shouldn't have got that role and and um and you have that moment where the director is looking at is looking at betty and there's this sense that like this is the girl but that is not the girl right it's it's going to be camilla Rhodes. so like i i also think about that as like the dream is the dream is really interesting because she's doing that. She's also kind of in a Nancy Drew style sort of way, trying to solve a mystery that will, that literally eventually leads to her finding herself, mm-hmm. right? Finding both finding her as the murderer, we or the person who initiates the murder, um, but also literally finding her dead body. Like, uh, and, and that's what it's, it's a great moment right after they see that and they run out into the courtyard 
And it's like re- the the reality of the dream doesn't hold anymore. And it like you start to get this blurring and shaking, um, you know, because it is this sort of thing. It's like, what happens if you found yourself in your dream world? Like, what would that do to your sense of of what is real and what is happening? Okay, so, Sam, I feel like I have to say something extra textual right now. And it kind of gets back to your question about how did I respond to the film initially? There's many ways in which the story of, of Betty slash Diane is the story of Naomi Watts. Um, Naomi Watts had been trying to make it in Hollywood for about 10 years, and she'd been in some things, but she was literally on the verge of giving up when she was cast in this film. So part of my response to this film when I first saw it was, wow, who in the world is Naomi Watts and where has she been has she been hiding out, right? Right. But, but so there's a sense in which it's, 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 it's her story reversed. You know, she's not Betty becoming Diane. She's Diane becoming Betty. And I also have to add that when she was cast, she didn't know she was going to play Diane. All she knew about was playing Betty. Uh, and then the Diane character kind of kind of came along. So it's so it's interesting that, um, you know, there are these kind of accidental and yet kind of autobiographical elements uh, to the film. Yes, absolutely. And, and to your point, in the pilot, we never get to... Naomi Watts as Diane. No, no, that, that's that. That's not in that. We, you know, we don't get obviously there at all. So, um, I have another section of my notes that I just put as fascinating rem, uh, remainders. If I'm thinking about this as a math problem that has these frustrating remainders, mm-hmm. um, so I want to go back to the scene at Winkies, and I, I actually love the way you talked about that the the camera work in what should just be sort of an over the shoulder shot of somebody talking, and you're I had that same thought of like. The camera shouldn't be moving, but it is. And then there's this this great moment where he's told the story, and it's clear that the story of the dream is not what's happening because the person who's supposed to be at the counter isn't at the counter. It's like, well, obviously that's not happening. And then there is this great moment when he goes to pay and he looks over his shoulder, mm-hmm. and you and the dreamer have the realization of, oh, wait, we just slipped into the reality of the dream. So it's almost like a deja vu moment he creates where he preps you for that and then it happens and you're like, and so he's prepared you for it. Now, the thing that I love about um, when they go back behind Winkies is he uses a, a shot that he is going to use throughout this movie and he pays it off the first time he uses it. And then never again, mm. which is you, you, this movie is full of point of view shots where all of a sudden we're in this floating point of view as we're walking through we're walking, you know, back behind Winkies or later we're walking through an apartment and we get the 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 legitimate jump scare behind Winkies. And then every other time he uses that, there's this sense of like, he's now prepared me that anything could come from anywhere. And then he never does it again, but he creates that sense of tension where, okay, we're in, we're, we, we've slipped into somebody's point of view and we're turning a corner and, mm-hmm. and I just, I just think that's so, it's so great to do it almost in reverse, right? Instead of like, I'm preparing you for it to be nothing. And then I'm going to give you the jump scare. Instead, he gives it to you right away. And then every time he employs that, your my, my like senses get heightened because I'm getting ready for like, I don't know if I want to see what's behind this corner or behind this door or, and, and, and I just think that's brilliant. <laughs> um. Another another uh, remainder that I think is interesting is when we think about things that have correlations to the the real world, real world, the world post dream. Um, Mr. Roke is one of the characters that 
only appears in the dream, right? We don't see, I don't think he appears any point after the, after, after she wakes up. So I found that interesting. And, um, I'm also like, I'm fascinated by, well, obviously the, the television show would have maybe even just been an entirely different story, but, um, I'm fascinated by like where he was going to go with, with some of this stuff. Um, the, uh, uh, the cowboy is one character we haven't talked about yet. And I think this is every time as I've rewatched this, this is the person who I'm most interested in um, because he is simultaneously a figure of menace. Like he, he seems to have authority and without doing anything explicit, he wields a kind of authority at the same time is he giving good advice? <laughs> you know, like, like, like there's the, you know, a man's attitude goes away to the way he, his life will be. And I'm like, that actually, it, it, it's, he's not merely threatening, you know, some of the other folks like the Castigliani brothers only seem threatening the cowboy. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what, what to make of him. I, you know, it's, I, I hadn't thought of the, until just this very minute, but I think the cowboy reminds me a lot of the um, of the character played by Robert Blake in Lost Highway, uh, the, the mysterious guy that shows up at the party, and you're not really quite sure how he fits in. Um, I, 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 the the cowboy is great because there's two things about the cowboy. I'll say uh, as a as a as an actor, first of all, he's not an actor; he's just a friend of David Lynch's. Couldn't remember his lines. So they actually had to put his lines on um, uh, Justin Thoreau's chest so he could read them off of Justin Thoreau because he just couldn't remember that. Secondly, his costume is uh, the old the old silent Hollywood star Tom Mix, the cowboy. That's actually Tom Mix's hat uh, and uh, and Tom Mix's jacket. So he's so there's kind of an inside Hollywood reference to his appearance as an old time silent movie uh, cop cowboy. Um, he, he's he's kind of an oracle, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, Lynch is very interested in receiving messages from either the unconscious or, you know, he's deeply into transcendental meditation. And so he just feels like ideas kind of come. He, he says sometimes they pop out of the ether. Um, and, and there's a sense in which the cowboy kind of represents that. I mean, and whether whether what he's saying is just kind of a dumb cliche uh, or, you know, uh, pop psychology or whether there's something profound about it. I think that what's interesting is the way that he shows up and it's a very Lynchian moment because, you know, Lynch loves electricity. He loves the sound. of. I electricity. thought about that. And what I love about that scene is the way, and this is what clue to me that we're in a dream, right? The, the, the way the, the light doesn't just come on, but it crackles as it comes on and it crackles as it, as it goes off. And so the whole thing is just like this, like I said, it's like almost like a visitation from some kind of um, some kind of supernatural force, right? And and, and it's and it's it's almost like an angelic uh, visitation. You know, you will see me once if you do good. You'll see me twice if you do bad. Uh, we see him once more, right? Well, well, we see him twice, but Adam sees him once more at the dinner party uh, as he as he walks through the background. So okay, I, I want to talk about that because I have a different read on that. I have okay, a different. Okay. okay, so so here's my here's my read on that. Um, if we assume that Diane is the dreamer, right? Mm. Of this dream. 
Ah, uh, okay. Then maybe he is I, actually saying, if you do good, I will appear once. If you do bad, I'll appear twice. Maybe he's saying that to Diane. Yeah, and he has okay. appeared, he, he does appear twice then. Okay, and and yeah. yeah. Now I don't think the dream is her dream after like like as she or after she shoots herself. I I think you can piece the the there it's possible to piece the logic of this of like um okay, let me let me let me think through this. So okay, so when we see him come and say wake up, that's actually this his second visit to her. Because when she wakes up, some of the stuff that happens is her and her apartment remembering. And if we look at some of the other clues that Lynch gives, he talks about paying attention to the coffee cup, the ashtray, and the robe. And that gives us some time indicators that what we're seeing in that apartment are happening at different times. Mm. So I actually think there's a... So right before she kills herself, we see her sitting on... Oh, oh, we see Diane awake, sitting on her couch, staring at the blue key on the on the table. And that's then when the little people come under the door and, you know, and that leads to her death. Um, now, before that, she was thinking about being at the party and seeing... Um, he sees, she sees the cowboy in the background walking, leaving the party. I don't think that's Adam that sees him. I think that's Diane right, that sees him, right. right? Okay. Right. And then it's after the party that she calls in the hit. Yeah. And then he appears a second time. And then, because then the, se- the se- first time we see him wake her up is actually the second time because she's remembering the first time she saw him. So I actually think he appears to her twice implying that she did bad so i'm wondering if that whole cowboy thing we shouldn't read as this is a message that was to the director but this is her repurposing something that was said to her yeah yeah um so i think those two visits are two visits to diane okay i like that i I could be wrong on that but i like that sam i think that works really well so 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 here's a remainder for you um how how is it that Diane and um, Rita Camilla see, I mean Betty and and Rita see Diane's dead body? Well, for one thing, it's not Diane. I mean, it's it's not it's not it's not Naomi Watts, right? It's a different it's a different body there. So it oh. could be that she's projecting on to like yeah yeah. I mean, like again, I love the beautiful remains. I had the same thought of like. You know, they're see they see a dead body in that bed. Right, a dead body, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I like I find that fascinating, and I and and this is why I, I I like I like the fact that he gave the clues not because it's there's a solution, but because he wants us to have conversations like this. Like he's a, he doesn't want this to just wash over you and be like, wow, that was weird. I didn't. I don't get that. He's like, no, no, no. Think about it. Like there's there is stuff here. And we can, but well, we still end up with different interpretations and different understandings. And I kind of, I kind of love that. Oh, I do. I think that's what makes that's what makes it such an interesting film because you can see it one way on what it's almost like the uh, it's almost like the rabbit duck problem, right? You can see it one way, and exactly. Then you can see it the other way, and they both work. Um, uh, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, is there anything you want to particularly talk about? I mean, we, there's so much stuff we haven't talked about, but oh yeah, I, I um. I, I guess I, I guess I want to go back to the music a little bit. I feel like you know we haven't talked quite as much as I would like to about the role that music plays. Um, you know, in uh, there's there's three important songs, uh, right? You get the the first two in the Sylvia North story, um, 
And interesting to me is th those are both kind of late 50s, early 60s standards. Uh, and it kind of connects in a way to the jitterbug scene. So maybe it explains why it's the Sylvia North story that Betty is interested in being part of. It seems to be of a piece with her kind of jitterbug past. Um, but the other thing, of course, is the presentation of crying uh, in, in Spanish in Club Silencio. So that's uh, the singer is Rebecca Del Rio. And it's a really interesting thing that happened. Uh, Lynch uh, met with her in, I think they were in Nashville for some reason. He was with his sound engineer, John Neff, who actually died a couple weeks ago. Uh, and she came into the studio and she just walked off the street and did this. This is her translation of the Roy Orbison song, Crying. He just, she, she did this in one take. Wow. And then when they went to film it in Club Silencio, she's lip syncing to herself. Um, so anyway, I just, I, I, and as we talked about that a little bit earlier, but I think that's about the kind of um, the reality of the Hollywood illusion. And, and part of what's happening there to me is despite every, um, if you want to call it warning that the MC has given you, there is no band, there is no orchestra, despite every single warning he gives you, when she comes out and sings, you are absolutely convinced that she is actually singing until yeah. she falls over backwards and you realize, you know, that, and to me, that's Lynch's kind of metaphor for what it means to respond to film, that even though you know you are watching a fiction, it doesn't matter. You get so deeply drawn into it. So I don't think that Club Silencio is in any way a cynical commentary on Hollywood's illusion. I think it's an I think it's a love note to the power of, of the medium to involve the viewer. So that's why I that's that that to me is why Club Silencio is so completely fascinating. I just love that sequence. Absolutely. No, I I one hundred percent agree because it is it is funny. He's he, they go out of their way to, to tell you yeah. to not to not feel a certain way about this because you're you we're telling you it's not what you think it is. And at the same time, it is he, then he's like, well, but then let me show you my powers. And it's like, I can make this feel, you know, I can make this feel as real as anything you've because it is it's watching her sing and you're in that tight close up and you're watching her face. And, you know, and um, and you even see like what I love about that is you know, cause this has to do with facade and reality too. Like, because you're so tight, you're so, I spent so much time looking at her makeup. Yeah. The you know, and it's, the you know, yeah. yeah. And, and, and even her eye makeup and her, and her, and her makeup on her lips, because you see the imperfections, you see the, the, the facade of it, but you're, you, even that is, can, is making you forget that what you're hearing is also that because what you're hearing feels so real. Yeah. And feels so, yeah, sort of emotional. No, it, it, it also captures one of the things that I love about Lynch as a surrealist, uh, as opposed to somebody like Bunuel. Um, I always, I always feel with Bunuel, you're in a kind of a cynical world, uh, mm -hmm. a cynical perspective. Lynch is not a cynic. Um, I mean, there is a heart to this movie. I mean, even even when he's parodying Hollywood a little bit, even when he's kind of making fun of things. I mean, at the heart of this, there is nothing cynical about his portrayal of the two women crying as they listen to the song crying. I mean, that is really about deep human emotions. And in the same way that he brought in, I mean, as he says, the film is a, we haven't really said this, Sam, the film is a love story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever the reality is of what happens between Betty and Camilla, Rita, whatever, 
it is this is fundamentally about love it's about love the love of those two women it's about the love of movies it's about the love uh love of hollywood i mean it's fundamentally a love story and to me that's what makes lynch's films interesting it's not just the technique it's not just the mystery but it's the fact that there's always a human heart beating somewhere at the center of it well, and I, th- I think, you know, to tie into what you're saying about Club Silencio, another scene we haven't talked about, which talks about sort of the power of the artifice, even though, you know, it's artifice is the uh, the audition scene. Yes. You know, where, again, you couldn't be in a more artificial setting. You've already seen them practice this dialogue once you've already heard it. Now we're in this scene and we've, we get introduced to everybody in the room and we we're kind of uneasy about it and all of this. And once it gets started, it's like all that gets stripped away and, and, and she transforms into something that you entirely buy, you know? Yeah. Which is a masterclass in uh, what great actors can do with the same material, right? She turns into a great actor right, right in front of our eyes. And one thing I have to say is this is, this is distinctly not how Lynch casts. Yes. Lynch, Lynch casts by looking at headshots and talking to people. He never has them run a scene. Uh, so I think that's also kind of Lynch's criticism of that kind of Hollywood practice, which he doesn't consider. I don't know he doesn't he doesn't like that as a way of treating actors, I guess. Right, right. Um, so, like I said, this is the fourth Lynch film we've seen. Um, I'm curious, not just among the movies we've seen, like, and again, I'm going to ask you a question you hate. Like, where does this fall in the Lynch canon? Is this like, is, I mean, obviously this is number eight on the sight and sound list is this the is this the apex of of lynch or do you do you yeah. feel like it is something else no i think this is it i mean i love i love eraser head as you know i can keep going back to eraser head but um eraser head is um i don't know what the way eraser eraser head is a um is a is a miniature masterpiece this to me is a is a big is a big math to me those are those are his two great films um yeah so and i have to say uh the the sort of art the lynch arc of this podcast you know i came into this being a, a huge fan of lynch's lynch's episodes of twin peaks like the, maybe the first season or two where he was more heavily involved um i always had complicated relationships with his other stuff like i was drawn to it but i didn't feel like i liked it or understood it um when we watched Eraserhead, that was a pretty powerful moment for me of of like starting to feel like things got unlocked. I feel like the the scales fell off my eyes this week watching Mulholland Drive. I was trying, trying to get my wife to watch it again because we she watched it with me in two thousand two, and <laughs> well, didn't and didn't like it. And I now I'm I'm telling her like I think this might be like one of the great things ever made. Like I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to like square that circle that i felt one way then and now i just feel like i i'm i'm in awe of this movie um i've come to the point where i i i kind of like what roger ebert did where instead of like ranking movies he just has a category where he says these are great movies right and it's like because that doesn't have a numerical thing i mean i think if i was you know i like to think about like what are the movies that are in the conversation for being you know, in the 10 greatest movies of all time. And maybe there's 50 movies that are in that conversation. This one is squarely in there um, along with some other ones that we watch. Like I, I've watched it three times this week. And honestly, if you told me I needed to watch it again this afternoon, I would be thrilled. I would be so excited to, to go back to it and think more about it. It makes me really want to go back 
um, and watch the Lynch movies I haven't seen. Um, I, I've uh, lost highways hard to get your hands on still. I, I really would like to see that um, because I think what I've read about and heard about is that there's some relationship between this and lost highway in terms yeah, of, I, I was going to say lot. Yeah. Because lost highway, I'm not giving anything away, but the, the same character is played by two completely different actors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no explanation. There's just a break. And Robert Blake um, appears in one of the most terrifying scenes that I that I know of, and it's all psychological. So, yeah, Lost Highway is one I've been wanting to go back to. I've only seen it once, the when it came out, and I haven't seen it since. Yeah, I think Criterion put out a disc this year or this last year for it. So, hopefully, it's going to be a little more out yeah. into the world now. So, oh, can I just say one thing about that? That the Criterion uh, uh, the Criterion disc of of Mulholland Drive um, uh, does not have Lynch's list ten of ten clues. Okay. He has kind of an uneasy relationship to that list. Uh, secondly, um, if you watch the movie on the Criterion disc, I think it's true of all of Lynch's films on disc. They are not divided into chapters. Oh, um, he does not does not uh, does not approve of that. So the final thing I want to say, um, uh, Sam, is what is the title of this song? Is it, it is Mulholland DR. Is it Mulholland Live DR as on the street sign? Or if you watch all the way to the end of the credits, the last thing that's on the screen is Mulholland Drive completely written out. Oh, and really? You see, it, you will see the title represented differently. Uh, sure. And on the front of the DVD, it's Mulholland Drive, the street sign. Um, but so it, it's always interesting to me to see how critics refer to it. One, one, one that I read said something like, he gave them a how he gave the street sign title saying this is how the title of the film is stylized, which I think is kind of interesting. But yeah. I just think that's so Lynchian. Uh, yes. it, and it's also a Sunset Boulevard titles. callback, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Barrett, uh, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I think this one just kind of fell into my lap. I feel like we we haven't done a classic Hollywood film for a while, so I think we got to watch Gilda. Oh, great. Uh, having seen Rita Hayworth on the poster as Gilda, I think we got to go back and watch Gilda. Fantastic. <laughs> Barrett, thank you so much for for uh, for recommending this. This is, if you haven't seen this movie, we didn't ruin any of it in this conversation. It, this is this is why the word masterpiece was invented. I really do think this thing is 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 so has so much depth and interest to it. And if you're curious on YouTube, you can watch the pilot. And I think that's worth a view as well. Um, uh, that is all the time that we have. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about Gilda in the video store.